right, good afternoon. I see that people are still trickling in and we welcome you. Um, my name is Professor Meg Rithmeyer. I'm an associate professor at Harvard Business School and I am the convener of this seminar series on the Chinese economy at the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard. Um, today, we are fortunate to have the co-sponsorship of the Dr. Class Center for Latin American Studies, um, the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies, it's called the Dr. Class in Harvard parlance, um, for a special session on Chinese finance in Latin America with Professor Stephen Kaplan. Um, before I let Professor Kaplan talk about his new book, let me introduce him very briefly. He's Associate Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at the George Washington University Elliott School of International Affairs. Um, his teaching interests and research interests focus on the frontiers of international and comparative political economy, where he specializes in the political economy of global finance and development, including the rise of China in the Western Hemisphere and Latin American politics. His first book was called Globalization and Austerity Politics in Latin America. And the book itself and the dissertation on which it was based won a number of awards from the American Political Science Association and beyond. And in the, for the last several years, he's been working on this project on Chinese finance in Latin America. The book, which I have here, is called <laughs> The Rise of Patient Capital, The Political Economy of Chinese Finance in Latin America from Cambridge University Press. And I suppose I shouldn't say this because it's bad for book sales, but it is available for free um, online <laughs> to read on Hollis Library. So if you don't want to buy a copy of the book, you can always access Harvard's libraries to download the individual chapters and read them. It's a special opportunity to hear from Professor Kaplan because uh, this localized knowledge of both Latin America and Chinese finance is exceedingly rare. We do have some colleagues across the river, including Kevin Gallagher and others who focused on this, who give blurbs on the back of the book, um, but we're lucky to have you here. In addition to Professor Kaplan, we have a colleague of mine, Professor Laura Alfaro, to discuss, and I will introduce her um, to give some discussant comments. Um, she's exceedingly qualified to do so after Stephen gives us a talk on the book. So with that, I will mute myself um, and welcome Stephen, but just a couple of housekeeping notes. Um, we are live streaming to YouTube, so you can watch this later if somehow you need to go. Um, and after Professor Alfaro's comments and um, Stephen's uh, response, uh, we will open it up to Q&A. So I encourage you to use the Q&A box at any time to um, insert your question at any point, and um, I will be fielding them at the end of the seminar today. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor Kaplan. We're excited to hear about it. Thank you very much for having me. I am going to share my screen now. So thank you very much for having me. I wanted to, I'm very excited to be here today. Uh, and thank you very much to both the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies, as well as the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies uh, for hosting me today, uh, along with Meg and Laura as well. Uh, so what I'm gonna do is basically kind of set up, uh, you know, China's emergence as a global creditor and then look at how that has impacted uh, Latin America specifically and what we can learn from the Latin American experience as a debtor. Uh, so to begin with, if we look at this graph, beginning with the global financial crisis, uh, we see that China increased its global bank lending quite dramatically, uh, whereas prior to the global financial crisis, uh, it was a global creditor that was Fairly similar, if you look at the graph, to sort of what Brazil had been doing internationally. But you see a sort of Western financing uh, begins to withdraw following that global financial crisis. China takes the opportunity to increase its own cross-border banking activity. Um, and today is one of the top five bank creditors in the world. 
Um, at the same time that that's happened, uh, we've seen recently uh, that China and particularly President Xi has made some bold proclamations, right? Including, right, making China leading world power by 2050, uh, blazing a new trail for other developing countries to achieve modernization. And that China offers a new option for other countries who wanna speed up their development while preserving their independence, right? So we wanna look at what is the role of China's global banking activity in trying to achieve some of these long run objectives. Here, we can look at the geographic breakdown of China's policy banks, right? So China has both the China Development Bank and Export Impact or Bank of China that does a lot of this global uh, financing. And effectively, we can see that much of the cross-border activity uh, is oriented towards the Asia Pacific. But we do see that both Sub-Saharan Africa and the Americas account for uh, sort of a large portion of this financing as well. Americas has accounted for about 16 to 17 percent of this financing. Uh, and what we want to be able to do here is look at what we can learn from China's experience as a creditor in the Americas um, and not only sort of look at the variation in Latin America based upon China's financing, but also sort of what the implications of that are. So to begin with, in terms of a theoretical framework, uh, I'm looking at sort of the history of mobile capital uh, throughout the globe. Uh, and if we look at the history in the political science literature of mobile capital, we see that it focuses on rooms for states to maneuver, right? How much policy flexibility that states tend to have under financial globalization. An important part of this framework is the Mundell-Fleming trilemma historically, right? Which suggests that in a world of global capital mobility, national governments tend to face a trade-off between macroeconomic policy autonomy and exchange rate uh, stability. Now, a key assumption historically is that capital is private and uh, would thus exit countries when faced with financial instability uh, and currency depreciation that erodes profits. So ultimate capital's exit threat can compel governments to raise interest rates, constrain fiscal expenditures in order to try to reattract investment. However, I argue when you look at China's capital, it's a patient form of capital. Uh, and this changes the basis of the trilemma, right? Because it tends to be state-led financing. And uh, I'm gonna argue that it eliminates this capital exit threat to some degree and allows for greater policy maneuverability. Uh, why? Well, China has capital controls that limits its overseas private investment and restricts the ability of residents to invest in financial assets overseas. So there's a minimum of short run financial connections between China and the rest of the world. And we tend to get more financing that's long-term infrastructure oriented financing as a result. So why would we consider China's patient capital to be different from Western capital, right? To some extent, uh, right, you know, if it's, you know, different uh, from Western capital, in what way would it be different? Uh, so within the book, I make the following arguments for why China's capital may be different from market-based capital. One, it has a longer maturity structure often, right? Uh, which can be similar to other bilateral lenders, right? But the scale is rather unique, right? China has, particularly starting with the global financial crisis, uh, 
increased its cross-border lending, as you saw earlier, dramatically. And the scale of state-to-state -state lending uh, was rather large compared to what other bilateral lenders would do. Um, the average maturity of Chinese loans is 17 years uh, compared to about five years for private creditors. Um, and this reflects the infrastructure-oriented nature of global financing. It's global financing. Uh, I also argue that it has a higher risk tolerance, right? Uh, policy bank investors are more likely to stay with their investment through both good and bad times. Why? There's a, there's a longer-term strategy of China in terms of using this finance as a way to internationalize its firms, right? Uh, by using and employing infrastructure financing, it can also sort of unleash opportunities to gain cheap assets, market shares, improve key logistical skills of its firms, including marketing, distribution, local engineering uh, capabilities as well. Um, and so compared to, right, if we think of even multilateral financing or Western bank financing, Often it's very much oriented towards, uh, you know, individual uh, bankable projects. Comparatively, what we also see with Chinese financing is it's oriented towards creating strategic credit spaces uh, to create economic activity economic activity in risky environments. Um, now, of course, risk appetite is not limitless, um, but uh, you know, policy banks are willing to kind of uh, emerge in the space between traditional commercial banks and development banks in order to try to provide financing and capture market share internationally, right? So in the book, I make the argument that rather, about, rather than just being about individual profit maximization, Often, China is trying to use its financing to have market maximization instead, uh, to help capture uh, markets overseas. A good example of even how uh, China's financing right, uh, might compare to traditional Western financing is oftentimes during downturns, Western financing tends to exit. Um, comparatively, Chinese financing, because it's coming in to try to take advantage of buying cheap assets, uh, oftentimes what we've seen them over the course of the last decade is when there's an economic downturn, such as the global financial crisis, or in this case, you're looking at FDI into Brazil during Brazil's economic crisis, or even during its recent corruption scandals, we see that China's financing will come in and take advantage of uh, these opportunities to buy cheap assets, right? Um, so oftentimes where comparatively we see Western financing being pretty atomized, right? Where you have uh, portfolio flows, FDI flows, right? Aid flows, and it's all separate. Generally, Chinese financing tends to be more package oriented, where you may have infrastructure financing leading activity, but it's meant to generate trade, foreign direct investment activity. Um, and it's meant through this generation of economic activity to ultimately expand the size of market share of Chinese companies over time. So compared to uh, Western financing, another key feature, right? So far as longer term oriented, more risk tolerant historically, uh, but also is this lack of policy conditionality. So we tend not to get the same onerous policy conditions, right, that we get through uh, sort of Western multilaterals or oftentimes are reinforced uh, through market mechanisms. Uh, rather, there tends to be a doctrine of non-intervention in domestic affairs, right, based upon the five principles of peaceful coexistence in China, 
Um, and so ultimately, uh, you get uh, financing that tends not to necessarily focus as much as Western financing on policy conditionality. A good example of this is the policy banks have research arms, and these research arms, uh, you know, ultimately, oftentimes will make recommendations, right? Even recommendations that may involve macroeconomic policies, stabilization policies, things along these lines, but there's no sort of conditionality, right? Um, so oftentimes, even when I've met uh, with researchers at policy banks, they sometimes have even uh, communicated, you know, frustrations at times, right? That they could make and communicate recommendations, but there's ne not necessarily that teeth to those recommendations. So then this question is, if you have a lack of policy conditionality, well, how do you reinforce or how do you hedge investment risk, right? Uh, so in the book, I make an argument that with Chinese financing, you have commercial conditionality instead. Um, so effectively, financing is secured with loans that are collateralized by future commodity deliveries, right? So one key feature that we see in many countries such as Venezuela and in Ecuador is that effectively, you'll have loans to the government, but at the same time, you'll have a separate contract uh, with sales of exports of a commodity from a state-owned enterprise to Chinese importers. With the proceeds of those sales, they will be in bank accounts that are dedicated to repaying Chinese debt, right? So this is one way to hedge risk, even though you don't necessarily have policy conditionality, right? Traditionally, policy conditionality would say, if you have balanced budgets, right, um, and you build up government savings and will have more of an ability to repay its debt. Instead, Chinese creditors are trying to secure their financing uh, with commodities, essentially. Also, sometimes with this commercial conditionality, you have guaranteed contracts or oftentimes with Chinese firms, contractors and suppliers, right? So part of this is commercial conditionality is hedging risk. Another part of it is creating opportunities for Chinese firms abroad. So if China invests in a hydroelectric plant in Argentina, there are commitments to buy Chinese machinery, Chinese turbines, right? So it's a form of export promotion, very similar to Tide Aid historically. Now, a key trade-off, as we'll see um, during this talk as well, will be oftentimes with this commercial conditionality, there's not always contract transparency. So we see generally oftentimes Latin American publics get very concerned about what's in the fine print, right? Uh, particularly in terms of such things as environmental sustainability, uh, indigenous rights, indigenous opportunities, uh, things along these lines. So in this graph, you can see um, overall external financing, right? And generally within Latin America, oftentimes governments may not have sufficient financing from sufficient revenues coming into government to pay down all of their expenditures. So they will look abroad in order to help finance uh, their expenditures. And they can finance this in a variety of different ways. Historically, it's been through global bonds, multilateral loans, et cetera. What you can see happen throughout the 2000s is governments tend to turn to bonds, uh, less so in order to finance uh, their expenditures, as well as multilateral loans as they started to pay down uh, more of their debt. But comparatively, Chinese policy bank loans, particularly since the global financial crisis, accounts for a larger share of that financing internationally. So part of what I want to look at is to the extent to which Chinese policy bank loans are responsible for financing an increasing share of government expenditures, what kind of impact does that have, right? And do we get more policy flexibility 
as I suggested we would anticipate based upon now that global financing being state-led, more long-term, uh, risk-tolerant, and without uh, policy conditionality compared to other flows. Now, what's important, and we'll see throughout this talk too, is there's a trade-off, right? So oftentimes in the newspaper, right, Chinese loans are characterized as primarily state-to-state -state loans. But we see in, in Latin America is that they can also be market-oriented, right? They could, in other words, help finance projects, right, on, uh, and the money would go directly to corporate enterprises to help finance those projects, rather than necessarily directly to the government. So in this graph, you could see that even though state-to-state -state loans represent a large share of Chinese policy banks financing the region, there are some of these loans that are more market-oriented. So we can take advantage of that variation to see, does it make a difference if the loans, right, are more market-oriented versus state-to-state? Now, why might this be important? Let's turn to Argentina, right? And I'll give an example of these two channels in Argentina. We have the state-to-state -state channel uh, when China, China helped finance hydropower stations in Santa Cruz, Argentina. In this case, there was direct contracting with Chinese banks, right? Which was allowed for under Argentine law if it was concessional. Um, so there's an advantage of getting this cheaper financing for Argentina. Um, and at the same time, there's still sort of uh, you know, an increase in state indebtedness here because Argentina provides a state guarantee of the loan. Uh, so effectively, you have a state-backed loan, direct contracting. But when we look at the terms of the commercial side of the project, you see that there's a large portion of that project that's oriented towards civil works, right? Um, and almost you know, uh, more than 75% of that uh, ends up thus being giving Argentina some spending discretion, right? Where about a quarter of it is oriented towards paying for Chinese machinery, equipment, and turbines. Um, so you get this advantage of having some fungibility, some discretion, um, along with cheaper financing, but as mentioned before, issues surrounding transparency. Specifically with this project, the Argentine Supreme Court suspends right, uh, the advancement of this project because of environmental concerns. Right, uh, Effectively, the contract details were not well known. Lots of people fretted about the environmental sustainability of the projects. They end up being renegotiated, and the number of turbines uh, is reduced as well as a generating capacity. Right? Now, comparatively, what happens when it goes to the private procurement channel? Here, a good example would be Qatari's solar park in Argentina. Here you have a privately managed auction system called Renovar. And it's when Shanghai Electric Power Construction wins the bid, uh, the loan flows directly to corporate enterprises with the winning bid as well, right? So it's not the same state discretion, policy discretion, policy maneuverability. You still get from China's Exim Bank a preferential export buyer's credit, right? That allows for the purchase of Chinese machinery and equipment. So you still have kind of this tied loan element, but you don't get the policy flexibility, right? Uh, you don't get that policy discretion uh, that you do uh, when it flows directly towards the government. Also, it tends to be more transparent, right? In this case, uh, there had to be local community consent. Uh, you know, there was local members of the community could even receive uh, training to work in the plant, construction and operations, ultimately even got rights to participate in the, in the profits of the project. So there's a lot more transparency compared to when it flows through uh, the state channel. 
Um, so we're going to be looking at this trade-off effectively of, you know, more degree of maneuverability, right, and a lack of policy conditionality versus commercial conditionality, right? That's a trade-off ultimately uh, that many Latin American countries can face uh, with Chinese financing. So you see here one element of it, these are just descriptive statistics, effectively as China's bilateral credit expands, a share of total external financing, we see that on average primary budget balances also expand as well, right? So this is suggestive of the idea that governments may get more room to maneuver. We also see this, right, in uh, some statistics here as well. And comparative statistics, when we look at China's state-to-state -state financing as a share of debt or GDP, as compared to some more traditional measures, including bonds and multilateral loans. As you can see, with Chinese financing, uh, the sign here, even though it's statistically significant, is negative, meaning fiscal deficits tend to be associated with larger Chinese financing. By comparison, when countries finance themselves with global bonds, multilateral loans, there tends to be a positive relationship here, meaning the more bonds or multilateral loans, the more likely you are to have narrower fiscal deficits or even surpluses, right? So ultimately, uh, you know, whether fiscal deficits are good or bad will reflect the kind of investments that governments make. Um, so it's unclear whether this policy discretion uh, that may come from Chinese loans is sort of a good, a net good or a net bad. Um, however, right, uh, it puts the onus, right, rather than through policy conditionality, which is sort of a check for creditors to ensure that governments are saving enough to repay their debt. Um, comparatively, China puts the onus on countries uh, to manage that macroeconomic stability, right? And so, depending upon the governance situation locally, Right. You could have really good investments or you could have investments that go awry. Um, here you also see that relationship between uh, this negative association uh, between Chinese financing and negative primary budget balances as well across a range of models. Uh, descriptively, we can also see it in the case of Argentina, Ecuador and Venezuela here. From 2000 to 2018, uh, if you look at this graph, prior to the global financial crisis, even in these uh, nations that were governed by the left, we tended to have budgetary surpluses right up until the global financial crisis. Now, not surprisingly, during an economic downturn, right, we see countercyclical because of these government savings, governments are able to spend countercyclically. But the argument I make is that these blue lines would represent Chinese financing, right? And as you can see, as Chinese financing comes in, makes up a larger share of external financing, even though you had a counter-cyclical reaction to the crisis, these budget deficits tend to stay over time. I would make the argument that this would be the result of, right, not necessarily having policy conditionality, right? So governments not necessarily having to have the same kind of checks in terms of budget discipline uh, when they're borrowing from Chinese sources. Now, we see some variation here. Uh, for example, Brazil has constitutionally mandated public procurement. What does that mean? Right? That means that effectively Brazil can't finance itself through direct contracts right, with China. Um, so effectively, it flows directly to corporate enterprises in Brazil. So as a result, much of Brazil's financing is still very market-oriented. And you can see as a result even during a time where uh, there's economic downturns and you get sort of initially some counter-cyclical reaction, 
you also get the implementation of a constitutional spending cap, right? In order to ensure, right, in a country that has expanding government liabilities over time, uh, this constitutional spending cap is implemented in order to ensure budgetary balance in the long run, right? I would make the argument that the market forces and Brazil's uh, you know, share of market financing helps kind of keep this budgetary constraint relative to a country like Venezuela, uh, where there was no constraint that came with Chinese financing. Okay, so now I wanna switch over to commercial conditionality, right? So to date, we've made an argument essentially that as Chinese financing flows to national governments through direct contracting, state-to-state lending, the public balance sheet is often uh, expanding, right? We've seen sort of this relationship, a correlation. Now, on the flip side, as mentioned, right, even though there's no policy conditionality, we get commercial conditionality. And there's two types of commercial conditionality that tend to flow with Chinese financing. One is, right, it's oriented towards promoting Chinese commerce. So not hedging risk as much as promoting Chinese commerce. So that's bilateral tide aid, uh, you know, that's seeking to expand Chinese foreign content. Uh, you know, a good example of this would be something like, uh, you know, the preferential buyer's credit from the Export-Import Bank of China. Uh, in the case of Argentina, right, Argentina is one of the countries in Latin America with the most uh, nuclear power reactors, right, has three of Latin America's seven nuclear power reactors. So effectively, China looks at its global share of nuclear energy, it's around 9 10%, compared to a country like Russia, where it's at about 45% of the global market, it can use this concessional preferential buyer's credit in order to right, aid in the construction of a new nuclear power plant in Argentina. But then there's stipulations that the nuclear reactor will be built by China, uh, the foreign content and the purchases of machinery will all be related to China. So that can expand China's commercial presence in nuclear energy, not only in Argentina, but also globally, right? So there's this element of expanding, right? Rather than focus on individual profitability, focused on market maximization and expanding the share of Chinese business strategically and internationally. Uh, You often tend to have commercial interest rates, right? So sometimes we get you know, an orientation where it's called development finance, but oftentimes there could be commercial interest rates. And Chinese policy banks have the flexibility based upon the situation. Sometimes we get lower interest rates in the market. Other times we get uh, rates that are closer to the market, right? So this isn't necessarily straight for development finance, right? Uh, there also tends to be an element of this that's uh, also oriented towards currency promotion, renminbi promotion. Uh, so to date, right, much of global commerce, global uh, trade within Latin America tends to be oriented towards commodities. So a lot of this is settled in dollars today. But we see China building the apparatus right, through commercial banks, through its policy banks, through central bank swaps to eventually in the long run be able to use a renminbi. Right? And so there is an element of this that also is oriented towards internationalization of the renminbi. So we have this kind of set of Uh, commercial conditionality that's oriented towards promoting Chinese commerce. But then we also get tools for managing sovereign risk, right? When when meeting with policy bank officials in China, right, they would highlight essentially that 
well, you know, we have a different way of managing risk from the West, right? And we're very good at it, right? Uh, and so essentially, right, they would highlight a multitude of different things, one being administrative channels, right? In the case of uh, the hydroelectric plants I mentioned before in Argentina, when there was that environmental stay put forward, China directly communicated right, with Argentina, uh, sending letters and reminding Argentina about cross default clauses that were contained within the contracts. And if Argentina didn't move forward with those hydroelectric plants, China would pull its financing elsewhere, right? So there's this use of administrative channels in the contract to kind of enforce uh, agreements, right? And even though you saw there was a negotiation and turbines were reduced and generating capacity was reduced, nonetheless, the project kept moving forward. Uh, you also get commodity guarantees, as mentioned earlier, commodity-backed loans. This was very popular in places like Ecuador and Venezuela, where governments got more discretion through direct lending, but then the state-owned enterprise would sell exports to Chinese importers, take the proceeds, put it in a bank account that's dedicated to repaying that debt. Uh, and finally, you, uh, you have state-backed commercial insurance that would help support and mitigate this risk through uh, state, state companies such as Sinoshore. So when looking at cross-default clauses, this is an example of the kind of cross-default clause that you would see in contracts. Uh, this is uh, from Argentina's contracts, uh, and this highlights uh, the cross-default clause that existed between the Belgrano cargo railway and the hydroelectric plants I mentioned earlier. Interestingly enough, the hydroelectric plants had very relatively low Chinese content, only 30% compared to a traditional deal. So at the time, China was actually inserting this cross-default clause in order to ensure that the cargo railway was built because they had the 100% of the uh, content in that contract relatively. So ironically, even though they use a cross default clause to ensure that the hydroelectric plants move forward, it was contained because they were very concerned about the cargo railway moving forward. Um, so here we can see again, a set of descriptive statistics where the first kind of uh, commercial conditionality that's oriented toward expanding Chinese commerce is one here. That's kind of firms, you know, contracts to buy from Chinese firms, machinery, uh, things on these lines, right? And we can see the black is if it goes through corporate financing, the gray is if it goes through China state-to-state -state financing. The two highlights these commodity-backed loans, right? Securing lending with natural resource, commodities, things along these lines. The gray, again, is your state-to-state -state relative to China's corporate financing. What we see here is with the state-to-state -state financing, you tend to get a lot more of these kind of uh, oil for loan deals, uh, commodity guaranteed, resource guarantees in order to help secure the loan. So even though you get this policy conditionality or lack of policy conditionality, potentially more degrees of maneuverability for a government, at the same time, there are these commercial conditions uh, that are guaranteed instead through natural resources uh, and commodities. And you can see this relationship here in general, this association as China state-to-state -state financing makes up a greater percentage of total Chinese financing, you tend to have more commercial conditionality over time. So in the remaining time here, uh, what I wanna do is then from the Latin American perspective, talk about you know, these benefits and costs in a little more detail that come from Chinese financing. Um, and uh, then also look at what China's doing in light of Right, some of the risk it's taken on in the region. Right, so some people argue uh, that China 
uh, has engaged in debt trap diplomacy in the region. In other words, they purposely indebted other countries in order to get cheap assets from those countries. Essentially, what my work, right, and other people's work, I know Meg, uh, you know, has has illustrated similar points in her own work as well, effectively showing that well, you know, this is much more of a creditor trap in some ways, right? Where uh, China as a new rising creditor has made bets within Latin America that have gone awry. And so the lack of policy conditionality in some ways has left China much more exposed to credit risk. And it tried to mitigate this credit risk through resources and commodities, but was ultimately left exposed. So let's look at those trends in a little more detail. First, we have the benefits, right? So I highlighted that you know, long-term financing in a region, right, that has struggled, uh, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s uh, with austerity and implementing austerity in order to attract capital, uh, you know, where, what got cut over time? Well, actually, education, healthcare, these things actually expanded in the region, even during periods of austerity, oftentimes, in the long run, but where governments had to make the cuts with infrastructure. So we see sort of large infrastructure deficits throughout the region, right? In the 2000s, we had uh, Latin American investment at a mere about 0.6% of GDP compared to 3% rates in 1980s. So when China comes in with this long-term infrastructure financing, it's incredibly appealing to Latin American governments that need infrastructure, right? And they're not getting it uh, sufficient amounts through private sector, et cetera, right? Uh, Take Ecuador as a great example. They've had, they had a hydroelectric power plant project uh, in the works for over a course of a decade or so, but couldn't arrange financing from Argentina and other suitors. But in comes China with multi-billion dollar financing willing to do that, right? So Ecuador looks at that, and that's a great opportunity from Ecuador's perspective. But, right, this financing uh, can come with costs, right? And this is where the commercial conditionality is really important um, because loans are tied, as mentioned earlier, to Chinese firms, products and machinery. So just like trade negotiations, right? Again, sometimes this infrastructure financing has a development, right? Uh, rhetoric that's associated with it, but it's very much commercially oriented. And so when it comes down to the commercial side of these contracts, it's oftentimes a negotiation about the local content, right? A good example of this is in Argentina during the Kirchner administration, when they're very dependent upon Chinese financing coming in, uh, they were not able to, they would negotiated for manual labor, right? For the public works projects, did that very well. Weren't able to necessarily negotiate uh, for certain parts of the project, certain types of local content. For example, Argentina has an industry in railway ties, right? But they weren't able to secure right, uh, the, the, the components or those railway ties for the cargo railway during the Kirchner administration when these loans were first negotiated. The Macri administration comes in, opens up to global markets, has more of a diversified financing source, is better able to negotiate for this local content, right? So one is that even though this is infrastructure financing that sometimes sort of has this development rhetoric, has this win-win rhetoric, at the end of the day, Latin American countries need to have a buyer beware attitude because it ultimately reflects a trade negotiation over local content. Um, there's also lots of concerns about middle income trap, right? This is a concern that China has, right, uh, in its own economic development. But we also see throughout Latin America, right? Uh, you know, the history of Latin America has been one where countries have been very commodity dependent and wanted to diversify into industry over a very long period of time. And to some extent, right, if you think of the way these contracts are completed within Latin America, oftentimes 
as mentioned before, they're secured with commodities, right? Oil deliveries, commodity deliveries. But what's happening in exchange for that, all these countries are buying right, uh, Chinese capital inputs, Chinese machinery. So there are concerns of hollowing out of Latin America's industrial sector. Now, of course, China's aware of this. So they also say, listen, we understand you want more value added. We're willing to kind of do more manufacturing investment, things along these lines. But if you look at to date, much of that has gone to Brazil, right? Um, so only one-tenth of Chinese FDI has been destined for Latin American manufacturing sector. Two-thirds of that investment has gone to Brazil. Um, there's also the question of just labor costs, right? Latin America is a region that tends to have higher labor costs. That can be very difficult to then compete with Southeast Asia or other countries in Africa when it comes to these kind of advantages for uh, labor-intensive manufacturing. Um, and then finally, there's indebtedness, right? We'll get to indebtedness in a moment, but first we can just look again, these charts showing descriptive statistics over time. And you can see as China joins the WTO, this black line is high-tech manufacturing inputs from China, right? Expands dramatically. The dotted line, since China joins the WTO, which is high-tech manufacturing imports from the US, you know, relatively steady over time, uh, you know, but you know, obviously one of the big concerns is here, we have countries like Argentina, we have, you know, unicorns, uh, you know, tech companies that are emerging, but, right, uh, to what extent can that be a broader trend within the region, right? And so some of these patterns are, in, 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 uh, are reflective of uh, Latin America's concerns about uh, middle income track and the ability to be able to diversify into higher technology goods. Um, then we also see sort of in terms of commodity dependency, again, stylized facts, just descriptive statistics here. You see that effectively Latin America's primary commodity exports to China continue to kind of be high over time. And Latin America's manufacturing good exports to China have even dropped off over time, one from off of a relatively low base, but one from when China joins the WTO, but then also after the global financial crisis. So you see in stylized facts that there tends to be, uh, you know, sort of uh, a lack of Latin American opportunities for Chinese market in terms of their own manufacturing goods. Um, so the final cost would be in terms of indebtedness, right? And in terms of indebtedness, there's concern about the moral hazard problem, right? If you do not have policy conditionality, it could give governments more degrees of maneuverability. Coming out of an error, right, of austerity, this can be a very positive thing if governments spend wisely. However, when you do not have that policy conditionality, and if governments are not willing to orient uh, themselves to good macroeconomic policies, uh, macroeconomic stabilization, then you could have sort of uh, expansive government balance sheets um, without sort of any kind of check, right? And this is the kind of thing that we see happening in Venezuela, um, as well as Ecuador too, during these periods of time, where effectively they use uh, government commodities, as mentioned before, to help enable the state-to-state lending. Both countries expand their state balance sheets, but then, oh, China a lot of oil resources over time that are oriented towards help financing. In the case of Ecuador, it's four years of oil exports, right, that were used to finance present consumption. Um, and so this tends to be an issue in terms of indebtedness for the region. And this also reinforces the point I made earlier about China's creditor trap, right? As Venezuela enters into a debt moratorium in 2016, Right. Effectively, China cannot get its interest payments, its oil payments, the proceeds from those oil sales 
right, are not sufficient. So China is in a defensive lending posture, trying to reschedule and restructure loans in order to get uh, new principal and interest payments. It's quite similar to the kind of stance commercial banks in Latin America faced during uh, the Latin American debt crisis. So from this standpoint, I would make the argument that China's a new creditor globally, and rather than a debt trap, you know, made bets in countries like uh, Venezuela and was not able to effectively, how did they make the bet? They said, okay, Venezuela's oil production will be sufficient that that will sort of underwrite this lending, right? That will finance uh, or, or support this lending, collateralize this lending ultimately. What happens, so we'll see in a moment, Venezuela's oil production, right, falls dramatically, right? So there's not the proceeds to repay these loans. And effectively, that's where it's sort of a mispricing creditor risk situation rather than, from my standpoint, an intentional desire to make Venezuela indebted over time. Uh, so we'll close with these few graphs and before looking at how China as a creditor are reacting to these trends. And you can see in the case of Venezuela, this is Venezuela's uh, foreign debt over time. You can see it's greatly expanding. Um, and by 2019, it's over 200% of GDP. In the red here is the amount that China accounts for, right? So oftentimes this rhetoric of debtor trap is used in countries like Venezuela, but you can even see it's only about 20% of the overall debt that China is accountable for, right? So if we're going to use a debtor trap language, we have to think of Wall Street bankers, right? to think of everybody that has exposure to Venezuela during the period and was willing to kind of continue to lend. So the problem ultimately is that Chinese policy banks thought, all right, we'll collateralize this lending with oil, but what happens? Oil production falls over time, right? This is thousands of barrels per day. And you could see from 20, 2006 to 2007, all the way to 2019, Right, you see essentially that oil production, uh, you know, basically falls by about a third or so during that period of time. In the red is what China is promised, right, in terms of uh, oil sales, and you can see that it ends up being a larger and larger share of what's outstanding. What does this mean? State oil companies, right, have pre-commitments then to Russia, to China, to the Caribbean, right, through um, you know PetroCaribe, right, sort of foreign aid program there's less and less available to reinvest in the companies, right? So you have a situation where essentially as Venezuela goes through an economic and humanitarian crisis, oil production is faltering, there's enough, not enough proceeds to repay its debt. And we have a situation where Venezuela goes into the debt moratorium, hence a creditor trap. Okay, so in closing, we have about a minute remaining here. Uh, China now is taking more of a diversified strategy in the region, right? Because it had the state-to-state -state lending and still a lot of its outstanding debt ends up being state-to-state, -state, but they're also thinking about, okay, how do we diversify our exposure in light of the commodity downturn and more recently the COVID pandemic? So we see China increasingly using equity rather than debt financing um, to diversify its exposure from the state-to-state -state level. So in other words, we see state back equity funds, right? In other words, capital reserves or money from policy banks uh, that are used in order to directly invest in companies and manufacturing, logistics, agriculture across many countries, including Argentina, Brazil, Peru, and Jamaica. Uh, we see there's $40 billion of funds dedicated to Latin America since the global commodity downturn and 40 billion 
dedicated to uh, Silk Road Fund. But only for this Latin American funds, $2 billion were, uh, were actually implemented or uh, dispersed within Latin America right prior to COVID. That only represented about 5% of Chinese capital uh, that was committed to these funds. So we see that they're trying to diversify, but it's incrementally, right? So much of it still remains state to state. What else do we see? We see increasing move towards multilateralism, right? Uh, we even see it over President Xi's speeches at the BRI Forum from 2017 to 2019. We get an increasing focus on multilateralism, right? New investment partners. Uh, Chinese commercial banks are becoming more active internationally as well. Um, and we see more partnerships with multilateral institutions, including the World Bank and Inter-American Development Bank. I would argue this is in part this, this, this move towards multilateralism is reflective of a desire to try to mitigate uh, some of this debt burden over time as well uh, by trying to diversify its uh, finance flows moving forward. Uh, we can also see the AI, AIIB is operating with private procurement through international bidding. Uh, you know, so China is also increasingly sort of talking about the importance of private procurement and international bidding. Uh, so given what we've learned from Latin America, where when financing flows to those channels, it tends to be more transparent. And right, governments tend not to have that same discretion. The money goes right into uh, corporate enterprises and projects. Right, this may be also, uh, even though we think traditionally of China's state-to-state -state lending, if we see more and more taking place through the private sector or through procurement programs, that could be uh, potentially a positive sign in terms of trends such as transparency. Um, so with that, just want to close with a saying from uh, John Maynard Keynes, Keynes, essentially the old saying holds, owe your banker 1,000 pounds and you're at his mercy, owe him 1 million pounds and the position is reversed. Hence, one of lessons for China and Latin America has been one where even though they thought they securitized their lending through oil for loan contracts, commodities, natural resources, Right. They have found themselves in a position of defensive lending. Right. Places like Ecuador and Venezuela having to restructure in order to get access to uh, payment arrears. Thank you very much. I look forward to your comments and questions. Great. Thanks, Stephen. Um, I just learned a ton. I have a lot of reactions myself, but that's not my job right now. My job is to introduce our discussant, uh, Professor Laura Alfaro. Um, Laura is the Warren Alpert Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. Um, she holds a number of professional positions at the MBER and other places, including the Dr. Class um, Policy Committee. Um, she is an economist whose work relates to the field of international economics and in particular international capital flows, foreign direct investment, sovereign debt, trade and emerging markets, so all relevant topics. And between um, 19, 2010 and 2012, she served as the Minister of National Planning and Economic Policy in Costa Rica on a leave from HBS. So most of us just take sabbatical, but she ran an economy and knows many of the people featured in your book, um, many of the policymakers with whom Chinese um, investors or lenders um, are engaged in Latin America. And so, um, so Laura will now discuss the book for a few minutes and then we'll give Professor Kaplan a chance to respond. And again, I invite the audience members to please leave their questions in the Q&A box and I'll be um, asking them after um, this exchange. So thank you, Laura, for doing this. Thanks, let me share, um, do you see my slides? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Meg. Uh, she uh, reached out to me last week to comment uh, this book 
And I have to say that I, I did spend a lot of time reading it. I do recommend you to buy the book. So I'm trying to give you back some of the royalties that Meg took away. If not, your local library is always uh, accessible. So, so this is a fascinating book. And, and as was mentioned, I'm not going to overview it. It does have two big parts. The big part tells you the story of China as a rising global creditor. The second part looks at the world through the eyes of, uh, looks at this relation through the eyes of Latin America. So it's a rich analysis, again, of this capital flows relation. I, I would say long, because I'm an economist, we tend to do little articles. So I did spend some time yesterday <laughs> burning the midnight oil. But again, I, I just couldn't stop reading the book. As was mentioned by Meg, full disclosure, my political party was the one that actually negotiated the transition from Taiwan to China. This was a real politic a movement for a country like Costa Rica that we do a, our main source of income are related to trade, capital flows, tourism. A, we just could not, not have relations uh, with China. And so the overall thesis that one should engage with different players in particular capital flows players, I would agree. And again, this is what we did. Uh, but as my boss would say, and I, when I say boss, I mean the vice president of the country. When I was an undergrad in Costa Rica, I worked in a small consulting firm. It just so happens that who became later the vice president when I was there my, was my, my former boss. So it was an interesting relation because he still saw me as a student and I was happy still to learn from him. He used to own the biggest bank in Costa Rica. And so, as he would say, one needs to engage all the possible uh, relations, but one does need to read uh, the contracts. And so, so what I'm going to do is uh, focus on three topics. I'm, I'm actually going to reorganize some of the arguments as costs. Uh, the cost of a project is not only the interest rate, uh, another argument is I actually do see the lack of a transparency as a big problem, apart from something that Carmen Reinhardt and, and Christopher uh, Trevers have documented, there is a lot of hidden debts. So a lot of the graphs we need to take with care because they, they, they are under perhaps uh, representing some of the burden with China. I do think that budget constraints matter. Even if you don't want to write the budget constraint, if you want to ignore it, it's still there. And I do think sustainability came back to haunt, uh, as was mentioned. Um, and the last one is, I think, projects should be judged by the social rate of return. An infrastructure project on its own is not necessarily a great project. Uh, and, and so th that I do think it would be nice to engage in, a, in the next paper, if you want, or book. So, so let me go back to first the, the topic of the cost. It is not clear to me, per se, these loans are cheap, even in an interest rate point of view, because we're talking about the era of the very low interest rate. Here I plotted the US Fed fund rate after the global financial crisis is the time everyone went to low interest rates, just to be surprised by the current era, where the even lower interest rates. We have defined the, lower, uh, the uh, zero lower bound. The Europeans effectively have a nominal negative rate, but everyone could borrow at low rates. When I was in government, we knew. Our problem was not lack of financing. Our problem was capability of implementing good projects. 
every country in Latin America was able to spend it by times. We don't have that part, a problem with that part. When we're Keynesian, we do spend it by times. Our problems, we cannot save in good times. And that is what is required to be Keynesian. Um, related to that, this is also the time when Latin America actually managed to borrow in local currency. There is this famous uh, concern coined by Aiken Greenhausenman and then my, my good friend, Hugo Paninza, that Latin America cannot borrow in local currency. And that is a symptom of many things. There has been redemption to this scene and Latin America is able to borrow in local currency except from China. And it is true that there are swap lines, but they're still paid in dollars. It's unclear to me those swap lines are, are going to ever be used, especially in these uh, volatile uh, time. Related to that, we actually have managed to extend, extend our maturity. The average maturity in 2015 for Latin America is 20 years. And this does include very short-term finance needed for government. Peru, Mexico, and Brazil managed to sell 100-year bonds. So private capital is more patient than I would say the book makes it sound to be many forms of finance. And even Latin America has managed to extend maturity even to 100-year bonds. It, I would say that the fact that you have to buy the factors from China, machinery, equipment, labor, actually means that the project is more expensive, goes back to the cost. You do mention cases where they didn't have to bring the Chinese labor, Costa Rica did bring the Chinese labor to some of those projects. And overall, apart from the cost, if you do not have your workers, that means that you lose the spillovers, the learning, the know-how. So, so, so this is worse in many levels, but it also increases uh, the cost related to sometimes you're stuck with worse quality uh, inputs. There are many explicit and implicit guarantees. When you read a lot of these contracts, there are rate of returns, demand, and as I said, exchange rate. Latin America is bearing the exchange rate risk. Many of the contracts that look like FDI equity that are not. You go and read them, they're full of uh, contingencies. They become non-contingent uh, contracts. Even the private uh, contracts have implicit government guarantees. I can guarantee you that if a big hydro goes belly up, the government has to intervene, but many do have explicit in terms of a lot of these uh, uh, clauses. Collateral, I, I actually see it the other way. Being able to borrow more against collateral has never been a puzzle. The puzzle in sovereign debt is that you managed to borrow without collateral and without an international uh, uh, institution to deal with bankruptcies. So if they pledge collateral, they borrow more, that's fine. Of course, as we have found out, they have more and more to refinancing because a lot of this collateral is very hard to repossess and a lot of this restructuring is not very transparent. And again, there are all these problems with non-disclosure clauses, that renegotiation is a mess. You have to go to China for arbitration. Good luck with that one. And as you know, uh, your colleague Anna Gelper and co-authors have written a lot, a lot about these contracts. The second, as I said, I do think lack of transparency is a big issue. First, it is hand with hand with corruption and this is, has been terrible for our region, delegitimized spending and taxation. I have a little paper that I'm presenting at the AAR Papers and Proceedings where we compare three scenarios, the world without China, 
the world with China with incomplete information, but the world with China and complete information. We do many robustness where we look at whether these type of lending are substitutes or complements, different cases of default costs under negotiation, what happens if they can collateralize lending or not. And we do get that when China appears, it does reduce the sustainability and leads to more defaults, something that Carmen Behan and co-authors have documented these complex renegotiations. But the best world is always one where you have transparency, but that doesn't mean that China lose uh, market share. And I do think that what we're seeing is that uh, they, they, they just played that there was no sustainability. There is, we now see a lot of these problems. And what is interesting is that sovereign default has always been a problem of willingness to pay more than capacity to pay. But when a country gets to 200% of GDP, and this is not only Venezuela, but a lot of the little islands and countries in Africa, I would actually say that they have a capacity to pay. And this has never been the issue in sovereign debt. China has put these countries in capacity to pay problems. Um, and then again, a project is a project. When you see it, you have to go and read the contract or the clauses. And here, I'm not that convinced many of these projects have social rate of returns. I actually took an undergrad at project evaluation course, social rates of returns will give you all the externalities, all the linkages. And again, it, one does need to do the, the calculations. The lack of environmental assessment is a problem. It's not trivial, even if it's by design. Many of these projects are actually not finished. So we have a road with China. It's at 40% of where it should be. It's a mess to renegotiate. Like every time we're trying to do something, it just becomes a complete mess. Um, and so the big question is, have these projects benefit the people? And it's interesting that the two cases they use a lot in the case are the sad, famous examples in Latin America of GDP reversals. Argentina was the richest country. It's not anymore, and every year it's less. Venezuela, which by the way is not a democracy, is also the same story. Argentina, nine defaults and counting, inflation above 50% before crisis, Inflation is one of the most regressive taxes. That means sustainability and budget constraints matter. They were not going around them. They are paying for these projects, taxing the poorest of their people. Venezuela, hyperinflation, again, before 70, uh, the pandemic. And you talked about that trilemma. Both Argentina and Venezuela also have capital controls. I would argue that flexible exchange rates have been very helpful and useful for Latin America. But in the case of Venezuela, there was another part of the, if you want another leg that was not thought in the Mundo Trilemma, people leaving, and that's what happened. Venezuela has the worst, one of the worst refugee crises in the region. That's what's solving this equation. And again, many of the projects with China are unfinished. And of course, the big question is whether conditionality would have made it better. It's unclear, but clearly what they got didn't make it better. Ecuador, again, where is it? At the IMF. It's interesting that Correa, after he left government, he went to the chief country of Belgium, and that's where he was staying. And now there is this, just recently, about the, the, the corruption probes. Multilaterals are political. That is a reality. There is a reason why Argentina has nine defaults, because they managed to come back. If they were not political, Argentina wouldn't have so many defaults but they do ask you to open the books. 
and in and that it's a good thing. There is no drawback of making a country open the books and find out what is it that they're doing. So to conclude, I, as I said, I do agree competition of world bankers are beneficial, but I am not as convinced that this lack of transparency has helped us develop. Lack of transparency does not necessarily mean there are no conditions. It just means that we don't know about them. And let me finish with the great words of one of the most wisdom, smart people I ever met, my grandma. She would always tell me, if you cannot tell me what you're doing, it's because you're not doing something good. So let me end there. Thank you, um, Professor Alfaro, for your comments. Um, I'm going to give um, Professor Kaplan a minute to respond, um, or you know, a couple minutes. It's, I did a, a figurative minute, and then um, I know I have a question, but I'm going to um, I'm going to go to the Q and A first. And so we have quite a while left, um, and and so um, so yeah, so Professor Kaplan. Terrific. Thank you, Professor Alfaro. I really appreciate it. Um, thanks for taking so much time with the book. And your reflections are super helpful, uh, including social rate of returns in terms of future projects. I think that's a really good idea, trying to think about social rate of return. Um, in terms of uh, some of the different points here, I'll try to highlight them as quickly as possible. One, transparency, right? It's part of the trade-off here, right? Um, and I absolutely agree with you. I mean, one of the things, the nice part about doing the field research here and meeting with people in person is you get a lot of people reflecting in government on the potential implicit costs here right? in terms of the lack of transparency, right? A lot of people talking about sort of lack of fine print, things along these lines. There's even sometimes like, interagency differences I've noticed right? when you when you meet with people where oftentimes the finance ministry, depending on the country, is front and center and negotiating these things. But then oftentimes planning ministries and other ministries have very different ideas in terms of what should be the key negotiation points as well. Right. So I think that's also, uh, you know, really important. One, one key place that came out is a place like Ecuador, where the planning, you know, people from planning ministries were saying, wow, we should focus so much more on local content and opportunities and all these things within the negotiation. And we, we didn't. Right. Um, so I think transparency is definitely a, an extremely key issue. Um, and as well as the sustainability of the projects. Right. We're seeing in places like Ecuador fissures and some of the walls that were built. Right. Uh, the dams and things along these lines. So there's important trade offs, not only in terms of transparency, but also in terms of sustainability as well, right? And that's part of the, 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 the broader trade-offs here. Um, also, um, your point about inflation, terrific. It actually connects to my previous book, was all about austerity politics uh, and sort of the regressive tax that inflation is. Uh, so undoubtedly, right, if you have expansive fiscal policies that lead to inflation, countries are going to pay with that higher cost over the long run as well. Um, so yeah, I think it's sort of not only the social rate of return on infrastructure projects, but expanding the horizon to also consider what happens down the road in terms of inflation as well. Um, also really good ideas, really good thoughts here. Um, in terms of uh, some of the other factors mentioned, and I'll try to be really quick here um, as well, uh, original sin, right? Undoubtedly really important. My previous work that looked at bond financing, uh, this is really important. And the fact that many countries uh, were able to issue locally that helped diversify away from some of this risk. But importantly, uh, you know, China, uh, does not do this, right? So you're still uh, effectively borrowing uh, in dollars. You still have that exchange rate risk. And I think it's it was exemplified by a minister I met with in Brazil who said, you know, we did this before, 
We don't need this from China, <laughs> right? We did this to this direct lending. We took on this exchange rate risk. We took on this debt. We don't need to do it again, right? Uh, so I think that's also a very good point as well. Um, and then uh, finally, in terms of one last point in terms of negotiations here that you mentioned in terms of uh, the labor content, right? This is something we see a lot of variation with within the region where countries that had more capacity, uh, like a Brazil to kind of push negotiations, we actually saw that investment was stalled from China. It didn't come right away because Brazil uh, really didn't uh, wasn't willing to grant visas for Chinese workers, right? That kind of slowed the process. Um, now today, uh, when the Chinese president comes to Brazil, he talks about Brazilian jobs, right? And so that's a big difference compared to other countries uh, where you see that Chinese labor was permitted to enter, uh, you know, without the same uh, constraints. Uh, so I think that's another really important thing to, to consider. And in terms of these kind of human flows, obviously, I think your point with the trilemma is really good um, to then think about, okay, what do we do in terms of human outflows, right? When you think of the fall of oil production in a place like Venezuela, one key component is a loss of managerial expertise. And that was a product of uh, the outflow of human capital. So um, also sort of a very important trend. But thank you very much. Uh, these insights were terrific. I think they've generated some nice ideas for uh, future projects. So I appreciate it. Great. So I um, will thank the audience for their attention and patience and open it up. So the first question that I'll give you is from Professor William Shao from the School of Public Health and Economists. Um, and he asked if loans financed by U.S. policy banks like the Export-Import Bank have similar bilateral tied trade or purchase U.S. equipment requirements as the Chinese. Um, and I'll give you just two at a time um, for the sake of um, efficiency, I guess. Um, and Andrew Quell asked, to what extent is China using its leverage as a major existing and future lender to support anti-democratic or corrupt regimes? Um, and, and so, for example, Maduro and Venezuela and increasingly other groups in other countries to obtain support in the UN um, for votes in favor of China and against the US. So kind of um, comparative economic question and then the political question. Um, so which I have a variation on too. So, um, so I'll have my question in a little bit, but, um, but I'll let you respond to those things. Yes, I've been answering questions over Zoom now for a full year and a half, and I still don't hit the mute button when it's time. <laughs> I start talking without the mute. Okay. Uh, so in terms of the first set of questions, tied aid, uh, you know, this is not in any way unique to China, right? So I divided, you know, their commercial conditionality. I would say the oil for loan deals are a more unique thing that their policy banks have implemented uh, compared to tied aid, which is much more common. We've seen that in the U.S. We've seen uh, many powers use that tied aid, right, where they attach, uh, you know, commercial conditions or conditions to uh, their aid, right, that you have to contract with U.S. firms, for example. Um, so, you know, one thing to note is that, uh, indeed, the oil for loans, there is some precedent for that, even though China has implemented this on the world stage, the precedent comes from Japan, right? When Japan's economic activity globally um, and in regions like Latin America, they sort of were some of the first uh, to implement these oil for loan deals. So, you know, China's really increased the scale of that. Uh, but even there, right, they're borrowing a bit from uh, the historic playbook uh, with Japan. Uh, then in terms of uh, the question about uh, you know, uh, transparency, uh, anti-democratic forces, things along these lines. I think that, I guess, first in terms of the transparency question, you know, from what I can gather in my interviews, and, and I'm not, when I did this research, it was not oriented uh, towards transparency primarily. It's something that would come out 
on a secondary basis through interviews, through secondary sources, uh, things along these lines. Uh, you know, there's nothing overt, right? Like I would, I, I would say like Russia's experience in Venezuela, there's a pretty overt geopolitical game. I think China has a less overt kind of game that it plays. That being said, I want to share with you um, a quote from a foreign investment guide uh, that sort of Chinese embassies put out. Uh, in this case, it's actually uh, for Costa Rica. <laughs> it says, it's a democratic nature often creates gridlock and massive amount of inefficiency. So you can see, and this is not just Costa Rica, through many of these foreign investment guides, they're telling their firms when things are too open, too democratic and too transparent to be aware. So that now that's direct communication with their firms, but you do see this kind of, um, and probably the best way to put it is concern about efficiency, right? And you see it both ways because certainly in places like Ecuador, when you had a five-year plan and there was a rush to implement a lot of this infrastructure, efficiency was important. But as Laura was highlighting, there's a trade-off there, right? And sometimes with efficiency uh, also comes lack of transparency, right? Um, so we see it in that way. Also, I want to highlight the difference between Central America and South America, right? So a lot of my research, particularly primary research, is oriented towards South America. But as you heard from Laura's comments earlier on, Professor Alfaro's comments earlier on, um, is that you know effectively China had a type of checkbook diplomacy in the region in order to get the spigots of Chinese investment and financing. You had to sort of you know uh, commit to a one China policy, and we see that happening. Costa Rica, Panama, lots of places within Central America and the Caribbean. But this tends to be this political conditionality tended to be a lot more common in Central America than necessarily South America. Great. Um, so let me insert myself and ask my questions. Um, so the, the first question I have is sort of thinking about um, the creditor trap and about China's willingness to renegotiate, right? And so, I mean, I take Laura's point and I say this all the time, sovereign debt is really never about capacity. It's always about willingness. And so it's always political, right? So it's hard to separate the political and economic. And so taking that as true it seems interesting to me, and especially, you know, when we think about what China wants, right? And so the argument that I get from your book is basically what China wants is increased market share and market access to the countries um, in which it's either investing or um, to whom it's lending, lending right? Um, and so, but then, you know, they run into trouble, right? And they run into trouble economically when countries encounter, for example, you know, commodity price drops, pandemics, those kinds of things. And then they run into trouble politically because their investments get politicized. And then you have things like a Supreme Court intervention in Argentina or presidential elections that run on anti-China platforms. And then a lot of the like um, green hostage stuff, you know, I mean, I'm not denying that many of the problems have actual engineering problems and environmental problems, significant ones that are surprising everyone. But, um, but in any case, you get, you know, we're suspending the project based on environmental concerns and then there's a renegotiation. So I want to know from your view, if you think um, the Chinese entities that you've studied, are they more sensitive to the economics or the politics? So basically, does China, does China want friends or doesn't want doesn't want money? Right. So you can see, you know, a, a, a trade off there to, to a certain extent. Right. Because if they want a return on the investment or if they want the export credits. And I should just mention, you know, in response to um, Professor Xiao's question, most of the Marshall Plan was actually export credits. So it's not for, in that sense. It's like, you know, well, how do we explain the rise of American ind industries in the 1950s and 60s? Well, they were exporting to Europe because Europe could only basically import from America. So that's like, there is precedent there too. But in any case, is it politics or is it 
bottom lines. Like, would China be excited to have a country that basically hates it, but is willing, but is nonetheless like open to Chinese firms and able to pay them back? And how do you see that trade-off playing out? And then a second kind of related question is about domestic politics, right? So some of the countries you're looking at are democracies. Others are, you know, uh, nominally kind of socialist or communist type dictatorships, you know, um, however you want to categorize Venezuela these days. And so um, do you find a difference in domestic politics and how it affects basically interactions with China? I mean, my hypothesis would be that democracies extract better deals from China when they renegotiate, um, you know, for basic reasons we might expect in terms of two tabled games, et cetera. And is that basically what you find in Latin America or is that variation not something you really explore? Thanks. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for these questions. Uh, terrific. Um, so, yeah. So <laughs> does China want uh, friends or does it want uh, monetary power? Uh, you know, I don't know if it's quite that dichotomy, uh, but I will try to prioritize or weight uh, those. I think, you know, for the most part, and in particularly initially, I think some of the a, a big part of the drive within Latin America does reflect the internationalization of Chinese firms, right? And Chinese geoeconomics. And so because of that, I think the countries that have a large share of commodities, right, large share of important markets, right? This is not necessarily development. This is much more commercial. So I think it's, it's willing to sort of engage in an economic first kind of diplomacy, right? Or a geoeconomic diplomacy much more when there are markets or commodities at stake, right? I think even as we sort of talked about before, I think in the case of many Central American countries, right, it ends up being more about politics, particularly with something like the political conditionality uh, about the one China policy. I think there's variation even in Central America, but I do think you see those, those differences. I also think in terms of undoubtedly, right, uh, they're very aware of the optics, right? So with Venezuela, not only is Venezuela an issue in Chinese domestic you know, politics to some extent, right, as sort of, wow, you know, what happened with those investments, but even internationally, right? Because you had essentially uh, China investing in a country that's a dictatorship, right, and the debt's going awry, there was a lot of criticism throughout the region uh, from other democracies, right? So effectively, China was really aware of those kind of criticism. I would even argue in the case of Ecuador, it was willing to renegotiate because that's generally what they've done when they've run into trouble. But there's also, I think, an element of optics with Ecuador, right? After what happened to Venezuela, Right. I think there was sort of a desire to, uh, you know, renegotiate in part for political reasons. Right. Because of the kind of flack and soft power politics that China was worried about within the region. Um, then you then you also have sort of the broader question in terms of this renegotiation and how important is regime type for negotiation. I think what's clear from both the field research on the Chinese side, talking to bankers and and this is implicitly, not explicitly. Right. But and then talking with people within Latin America is that. China prefers to deal state to state, right? If it had its preference, undoubtedly, uh, they prefer the efficiency, they prefer the state to state kind of negotiation. That being said, they're very flexible, right? And they'll also sort of use these market mechanisms I talked about based upon the country they're confronting, right? So in a Brazil, they're much more likely to invest uh, FDI directly in corporations, et cetera, right? So you see a diversified portfolio. Then comes a the question of renegotiation. Um, I think, you know, and I haven't tested this, right, but I would agree with your prior where I think to some extent, uh, you know, in Venezuela, the fact that you just have sort of this outstanding debt moratorium and you even sort of have a willingness of 
you know, Venezuelan authorities to prioritize Russia over China, right? And then this debt is sort of an overhang as you have really poor economic governance. I'd be surprised in a democracy if you could facilitate that kind of economic behavior for that long of a time, right? But again, that's just a prior. Comparatively, I think in uh, democracies, and, and some of this comes back to the point about labor I was making earlier, when you have stronger institutions uh, that are willing to push for issues that people care about, such as labor, right? Uh, in, in, in Argentina, uh, when I met with uh, folks there, one key thing that they highlighted was within the negotiations with China, right? The labor uh, minister said, listen, we have to use Argentine labor, right? There is no choice. We have to use Argentine labor on the manual labor with these deals, right? It has to happen. Um, otherwise, I'm going to get killed by the unions. And so that's a kind of trend that you would see in democracies, but you might not necessarily see in autocracy. So I think in terms of that negotiation, particularly in terms of labor, local content, some of these issues that evolve local labor and firms, um, I would agree with that prior that democracies may be able to get extract more out of these negotiations, right? Great. Um, so we have a couple more questions and not too much time. Um, so if you have a last minute question, you should um, you should throw it in here. But um, a couple of interesting questions about basically comparing with the U.S., right? So, I mean, what's interesting or, you know, why I, I tend to know more about China's um, engagement in Central Asia and Southeast Asia, but nothing, right, about its engagement in the Americas. But here you have China engaging in a place where it's typically been American companies and American international financial institutions and financial institutions that have been doing this. So, um, so to what extent is the U.S. trying to counter what China's doing in Latin America? Um, is there any sense of U.S. competition, either from the corporate side um, or, you know, this uh, this idea that Laura concluded with and you conclude with, with the competition of world bankers, right? So has the competition been enhanced? Do we see increased fervor from the U.S. or the West in general? And how do you see that playing out in the region? Sure. So I think there's been two trends along those lines. One, right, I mentioned that since the commodity downturn, China has established these state-backed equity funds. In other words, using China's reserves in order to allocate specifically towards um, investment in corporate enterprises, right, in Latin America, Africa, throughout the world. Um, now, what we've seen comparatively in order to kind of meet the uh, competition uh, challenge from China is we've seen things historically, entities like OPEC or Export-Import Bank in the United States, right? Remember, there was a political debate that was oriented towards closing the Export-Import Bank. Now what we've seen since sort of China has emerged more aggressively on the world stage as a competitor, we've actually seen a willingness to capitalize those institutions and through the BUILD Act, um, actually support private equity, US private equity abroad. Now the scale is nowhere near what China's committed, but there's a realization politically that this might be uh, a necessary thing to compete better on the world stage. Um, and so certainly now you have an institution development finance corporation that is marshalling resources uh, in this way. Uh, I also think industrial policy, right? Things have changed on the global stage to some extent in terms of industrial policy. We know East Asia in general has always used sort of industrial policy, uh, national guidance, national champions, things along these lines. But I think with China sort of using the subsidized finance, right, to create market share internationally, you see with the conversation about value-added chains this summer, a lot of concerns from the U.S. about its own capacity, right? We see a willingness to invest in industrial policy to some extent, early industrial policy, but crafting semiconductor industry, reinvesting in semiconductor industry in the United States. We've seen deals with South Korea over this past summer 
to have a shared alliance in order to invest and build semiconductor uh, ties directly between South Korea and the United States. And so I think that there's a realization that not only competing with China through private equity is important uh, in subsidizing that to some degree through you know, credits, but then simultaneously, that is also very important to start to think more holistically about industrial policy, right? Um, we not only see these kind of thoughts coming out of the United States and policies, but also uh, in terms of the UK as well. The difference is now we're seeing a Biden administration using alliances to accomplish this uh, compared to a Trump administration that's primarily going at it bilaterally. Yeah, the way I usually put that is that we're all becoming a little Chinese, actually. <laughs> and so um, and so that is interesting. Laura points out that the head of the IADB is from the U.S. for the first time, yeah, which is yes, maybe yeah. perhaps not insignificant. Um, exactly. Yes, yeah. completely agree. So, um, so this has been fun. I've learned a lot. I admittedly know so little about Latin America and um, and have appreciated this. And I can't wait to delve deeper into the book, um, which I have purchased. Well, actually, your, your publisher sent me a copy, but um, <laughs> but I encourage people to get out their wallets and buy it. Although, I'm, you know, you're an academic. It's more about getting ideas into the world. Exactly. So, <laughs> we're happy them to be out there. Um, so please let me express my gratitude to Laura Alfaro and to Stephen Kaplan and to the um, Dr. Class and to the Fairbanks. Center um, for co-sponsoring the event and it will be on YouTube and um, and we thank you. So um, there'll be two more seminars in the spring, but I haven't scheduled them or announced them yet. And so stay tuned for that. But um, but thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much uh, to both of you for facilitating this and having some uh, great comments and feedback. And thanks to the audience as well. Great. Congratulations on the, congratulations on the book. All right. Thank great. you.